Live from WNUR News, I'm Ellie Skelly. You're listening to the 6 o'clock news on WNUR 89.3 FM HD1, Evanston, Chicago. It's October 27th, 2023. Tonight on WNUR News, boo! Taking a peek into some superstitions haunting students on campus. Followed by a dive into SZA's recent Chicago performance and more on her rise to stardom. And taking a look into the 2023 fight for Speaker of the House. Those stories and more coming up tonight on WNUR News at 6. Thanks for tuning in. As Halloween approaches, we here at WNUR are digging deep into our archive to bring you a spooky story on campus superstitions. Brandon Condorance has more on why these beliefs are haunting students. Knock on wood? Avoid opening umbrellas inside? Throw salt over your shoulder? then you might not be surprised to find out that you're superstitious, a word coming from the Latin term for excessive fear of the gods. One common superstitious indicator is a series of ones all in a row to represent that good things are to come. Today is November 11th, so in honor of the 11-11 date, I wanted to ask students across campus about their favorite irrational fears and wildest traditions. To do just that, I hit Northwestern's most popular spots, Brandon on the Street style. Hello and welcome to Brandon on the Street. I am standing out here in front of Weber Arch on this absolutely beautiful fall day. I'm very interested to hear some of the answers that we get. Let's start with the basics. What is your favorite superstition and why? My favorite superstition is knocking on wood. Mine is knock on wood. Every single time I say something that like could get jinxed, I have to knock on wood. I always knock on wood. Knocking on wood is a tradition dating back to ancient pagan cultures. They believed that spirits and gods were part of trees. The action served two purposes, to gain protection from the beings in case something bad were to happen, or as a way of being proud when something goes the right way. But in today's culture, it seems that warding off bad fortune is the primary reason for knocking on wood. The folks I talked to have various interpretations of the practice, though they all center around the same action. I really like numbers, so I always knock three times. So it's knocking on wood, and it has to be three times? Because that's my lucky number, yes. So it doesn't have to be wood that I have to knock on, but like I will go out of my way to find something to knock on. My mom just knocks on her head, but I think that's a cop-out. I've been known to knock on paper because paper is technically trees, but I try to find at least like a faux wood. My phone case used to have like a wooden looking back and I would knock on my phone all the time. What I do if I don't have wood near me, I do the motion and I say it's the thought that counts. Lucky charms. Items of clothing, trinkets, or other objects were another popular answer. Essentially, the owner associates a given object with good fortune and will use it every time they want the same positive outcome. For some, a bad outcome without the charm merely reinforces its power. I mean, I do use the same pencil for all of my astronomy midterms, but it's like it's just, it's colors, do, you, so. do you have another pencil to use and you willingly several, choose that one? Several others. Okay. In the 2013 like, playoffs, 2014 playoffs when like, the Heat were playing the Pacers, I used to wear these like blue and yellow pajama pants as a Heat fan because I thought that if I was wearing Pacers colors, then the Heat would win. I went to 12 straight Florida Panthers games last year wearing the same exact jersey. It started really smelling, and the one time I uh, washed it, they ended up losing. The superstition is you never change the jersey. I have a lucky skirt in my backpack for all of my auditions. Yeah, my grandma gave it to me. 
Whether these small charms are truly lucky or if they merely give us peace of mind, they're still quite universal. Maybe our favorite socks or ring simply gives us a boost of confidence, but believing in pure luck is arguably more fun. We're currently moving to the rock. Weber Arch was quite dry as it seems, unfortunately. So we're gonna see if people are more receptive to talk up here. Superstitions aren't just about good luck. Another category of beliefs involves altering normal behavior for fear of bad luck striking. My favorite superstition is when you're going over a bridge, you have to lift your feet up so they don't get wet. My grandmother thinks that if you go around different sides of a pole when you walk past, one of you is going to get like grievously injured. So she like will walk back around if I go on the other side of her. When a sports team that we like is losing a game, my dad will move from wherever we are, but just him. He won't take us with him. My friend told me that if you're going past a cemetery, you should close your mouth and not breathe because the soul will enter your body if you like are breathing. Do you believe it? Loki, I don't like spirits, ghosts. I feel like I'm really prone to them. So yeah. Avoiding certain behaviors altogether is another common theme. My mom always said that if I cut my nails at night, they would never grow back. I'm like stepping on cracks. It's like some kind of like thing that I like learned in primary school. If you step on the cracks, that's like the doorway to hell. We've all likely heard, step on a crack, break your mama's back. But it may surprise you to learn that this belief has significant cultural connections. It isn't just a quirky phrase. Scholars have actually done research into this one. There are two primary interpretations, and they couldn't be more different. One, if you stepped on a rickety floorboard, it could fly up and hit your mother, which would have been disrespectful. Two, during the National War on Drugs, children who were dealing drugs could get their unknowing mothers evicted from public housing. Some hold a superstition about bad luck, but intentionally choose to avoid it. My favorite superstition is that you're not supposed to go under ladders because it's bad luck. I'll be doing that all the time. Anytime I see a ladder, I go out of my way to go under it, just so I can prove to myself that I'm here not because of my luck, but because of how good I am. You know what I mean? And I even found a superstition related to Northwestern lore. One student's friend refuses to walk back through the arch until he graduates. He just is insistent on always avoiding the arch anytime we go out that way. Like you will walk through the bushes to get around it. Other superstitions are simple connections to luck, passed down through one's family or even both. You need to kiss your exam before handing it in. It's just a pick. My superstition is that the number four is lucky. I do everything on the number four if I can. You I just think it's a great number. It's the thousand paper cranes myth. So if you fold a thousand paper cranes, then the gods will see your dedication and grant you a wish. I got to about 500 and every time I got to 500, I'd quit. I don't know if I really believe it, but I really abide by it because my mom really believes it, but no hats on the beds. No hats on the what? On the bed. Why, why is that? I have no idea. My mother just has always said that's bad luck. Sometimes they're just fun. When I have a can, you tap it three times so it doesn't explode. Have you ever opened a can without tapping it three times? Oh yeah, <laughs> Does it explode? No. I don't believe it. It's just a little fun thing to do. And other times they're a little complicated. I have this thing where if I think something's gonna happen, it's not gonna happen. So whenever I'm trying to want something to happen, I have to think of every possible scenario in which it won't happen in order for it to happen. But 
But then, of course, there's always one scenario I didn't think of, and that's what ends up happening. Personally, I believe that anytime you see a penny on the ground, you have to pick it up and put it in your shoe. It doesn't matter if it's heads up, heads down, left shoe, right shoe. It's simply good luck. I'm also a big fan of the number two. February 22nd of this year, 2022, was a big day for me. And I never open umbrellas inside, a tradition dating back to ancient Egyptian lore. Whatever your quirky belief or rigidly held tradition is, know that your superstitions are valid and might have historical significance too. And even if you don't have a hard and fast rule you follow, you might agree with the infamous Michael Scott. I'm not superstitious, but I'm, I am a little stitious. For this edition of Brandon on the Street and WNUR News, I'm Brandon Conkritz. Thanks for that story, Brandon. Moving on to arts and entertainment. SZA's rise to fame has been nothing short of remarkable. Recently, in what can be best described as her biggest event to date, SZA has been making headlines and connecting with fans around the country. As the SOS tour recently made its way to Chicago, many Northwestern students packed into the United Center for a chance to see her perform live and have the unique experience. Gabrielle Igoza has this story. A little over two weeks ago, SZA fans packed the United Center in Chicago as they awaited her long overdue arrival for the SOS tour. From a floating boat to costume changes to big hits from her new album, SZA not only impressed fans but put on a true performance that was unique to her style. Solana Imani Rowe, also known as SZA, was born in St. Louis, Missouri and gained her rise to fame through self-released EPs. She gained traction in the industry and eventually signed with Top Dog Entertainment in August of 2013, marking the first time that they signed a female artist. Since then, SZA has won 27 awards, including one Grammy Award. Therefore, when SZA announced that she would be returning to Chicago as one of her additional stops, Northwestern students immediately were eager to grab a hold of these tickets. Yeah, so as soon as I declared that I was going to Northwestern, I also declared that I was going to the SZA concert, but I did wait until the week before to even think about purchasing tickets. So I was stalking multiple different sites for about 48 hours. I was stalking SeatGeek, Ticketmaster, StubHub, Vivid Seats, all of them. Um, there weren't that many seats available, honestly, but eventually I just had to bite the bullet and get the best priced ticket. I didn't That's Toby Goldfarb, a current freshman at Northwestern who was willing to do whatever it took to get her hands on a ticket to this hot event. Before creating her own music, SZA listened to many genres ranging from indie rock to jazz. Although she was into listening to music, SZA didn't think it could turn into a career. During her college career, SZA transferred to four different colleges before finally landing at Delaware State University and was on the track to study marine biology. However, she ultimately chose to drop out during her last semester. SZA's older brother inspired her to start her music career as he was a rapper and would have her sing the hooks for his songs. As a result, SZA felt ready to start her own career in music. She began with SoundCloud and made many songs, including Aftermath. 
which began to gain traction and spread her name throughout the industry. She eventually released the EP Z in 2014. I think that SZA got super popular because her lyrics are very relatable and her songs are super catchy. A lot of them have ended up on TikTok, which has definitely brought her more popularity. Um, but yeah, SZA's always been one of my favorite artists, so I'm glad she's getting the recognition that she deserves. In June of 2017, SZA released the album Control, which has gained major success. The album was on the Billboard 200 for 200 weeks, leading to a even greater rise in SZA's listenership. Fast forward to today, SZA is performing in sold-out stadiums, has millions of monthly Spotify listeners, and still has much of her career left to chase new goals and records. Her most recent venture has been the SOS Tour, her largest event to date, understandably so. The concert was honestly nothing like I've ever experienced. SZA's a really talented performer. Her set was amazing. The costume changes were phenomenal. Her dancing was very well planned out. Um, it was just like a very out-of-body experience, honestly, watching her perform. The tour is her biggest yet, and fans are buzzing about the stage setup, props, songs on the set list, and just SZA in general. Because the whole concert was just like ethereal but um I really liked when she was in a boat and she was suspended by two ropes I guess and she was like floating through the crowd it was so fun. SZA's tour has been a way for fans to connect with her music unique music style and merge styles of music. SZA is not like other artists in the way that she uses her music to show her emotional thought processes and connect with audiences. I just love the wide range of emotions that she has in each of her albums, and I think that SZA just brings a really cool beat and spunk to each of her songs. Many fans have been impacted by her music, and much of that can be attributed to her rise to fame and unique lyrics. Although her fame has grown, she has always stuck to this unique style and what her fans enjoy, which has worked for her. SZA has always used her music as a way to become in tune with her emotions and hope that others can receive that and connect with her experiences similarly. I think that I first started listening to SZA in middle school. I was carpooling with my friends to dance and one of them played one of her songs and I think that's what started it for me. Most of my friends in high school were really big SZA fans so Whenever we would go in the car together, we'd always play SZA. And definitely coming to college and then being able to go to her concert was like a little piece of home for me. So that was really special. With SZA's rise to fame being prominent, people are excited now more than ever to get the chance to see her live in person and experience this unique musical talent the industry has yet to see but is lucky to have now. Now, if only I was able to get a ticket. Maybe next tour. Reporting for WNUR News, I'm Gabriella Egozi. Thanks so much, Gabriella. And now it's time for a little bit of oddities. Before Mike Johnson took control of the House Wednesday, the United States has been speakerless for over three weeks. 
Brendan Praisman has more on this story. Three, the United States had only spent two days in session without a Speaker of the House. The Speaker of the House is responsible for counting votes and running the House agenda. After Kevin McCarthy was ousted by a group of Republicans earlier this month, the House was speakerless for over three weeks. Louisiana Representative Mike Johnson's ascension to the role ensures the leadership vacuum will not remain. I spoke with some student journalists in Washington, D.C. to find out just how important filling the role of speaker was. Medill sophomore Julian Andrioni is a student journalist in Washington, D.C. for the Medill School program, Medill on the Hill. He says that without a speaker, the House of Representatives was effectively shut down. When there's not a Speaker of the House, just on a very basic level, when there's not a Speaker of the House, the House cannot pass any resolutions or cannot vote on any legislation. And because the House couldn't vote, the rest of the government was in limbo as well. Andrioni explains that most government funding initiatives have to go through the legislative branch. If the House is inoperative, it's impossible to get funding through. The United States government as a whole cannot pass any increases in funding through legislation, through the legislative branch, for any of these conflicts or anything else uh, without a Speaker of the House. So it really is uh, holding up some of the processes that define uh, America, or that usually define America's role as a broker in international conflicts. With conflicts raging in both Europe and the Middle East, American allies are relying on American aid. When the House wasn't working properly, that funding couldn't get passed. Luis Castaneda, who's also a Medill sophomore in Washington for Medill on the Hill, says that the speaker fight distracted from other events, like government funding and those wars involving American allies. In my perspective, it's very, like, narrow-visioned. Like, they're just so focused on this one thing, and then it's like, oh my god, like, there's so many other things to, like, pay attention to. Um, that it's like, this one simple thing is not letting things happen because it's like it just this thing just never happens right one major difficulty that was standing in the way of a solution before wednesday was that compromise had been almost impossible uh like every new speaker that they try to nominate just keeps losing more and this gap of like how many people say no to them just keeps getting wider i think for mccarthy i think it was like 18 19 i think we're up to like 25 people that say no now to, uh, I think it's Emmers, Representative Emmers. Um, Representative Tom Ember ended his candidacy for speaker hours after this interview was recorded. But, yeah, and then Democrats, I mean, on, on, on their side, they just, they see a lot of these Republicans as, especially on the far right, as more as insurrectionists. So they're like, why would we why would we strike a deal with you? You know, we don't even trust you. Andrioni agrees, saying that the Democratic Party saw no reason to end the struggle immediately. From their perspective, this was a problem caused by the Republicans, so the Republicans needed to solve it. None of the House Democrats voted for Johnson on Wednesday. I, uh, I think that it is also unlikely for Democrats to go over and vote for Republican. Uh, what we've seen, and based on some of my reporting and some of other people's reporting, is that uh, Democratic members of the House feel like they shouldn't touch this mess. They feel like uh, this is a mess that was created by the Republicans and needs to be solved by the Republicans. Andrioni also says the fight, both inside and outside party lines, got personal which made it difficult to foresee a quick end. Johnson ended up being able to bypass those personal fights, partially thanks to strong connections and support from former President Donald Trump. However, 
That was far from a foregone conclusion earlier this week. It's up in the air right now. It's really chaotic. Members are, are fighting uh, amongst themselves. A lot of it is based on personal vendettas. Uh, a lot of these people have, uh, you know, personal gripes with one another, and that's part of what's fueling some of these decisions. So it's really hard to tell. I honestly can't really make a prediction. Castaneda concurred. Given that nothing like this had happened in the country's history, there was no previous example to help determine an endpoint. Before Johnson's nomination and election, the length of the fight was very murky. You know, I just, there's no clear line of sight into how this is going to end, in my perspective. Um, from the, <laughs> like, the month and a half that I've been here so far, uh, you know, this is really just un 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 unpre unprecedented, right? Jessica Ma is a Medill junior, also working for Medill on the Hill. She was in the building when Emmer dropped out of the race for speaker. Ma also said the fight seemed like it could have gone on a lot longer. I mean, if I have to use one word to describe it, just like just chaos, I think it's very evident that there was a lot of like infighting within the Republican Party. So, um, I mean, I was honestly surprised that they were able to come to um, a candidate and decide on Johnson today. The fight ending is hugely important for the entire government. As Andreoni mentioned, legislation cannot get passed without a Speaker of the House. That includes legislation for the government's budget, meaning that without a Speaker... We are about 30 days, some, some odd days out. I mean, I'm losing track at this point, but we're about 30 some odd days out from the next government shutdown. There is a non-zero percentage chance that we enter a government shutdown without a Speaker of the House and that would leave us with no way to get out of the government shutdown, theoretically, just based on what the Constitution provides us. Because the Speaker of the House has to bring any legislation to a vote, mm -hmm. and you need to bring legislation to a vote to get out of a government shutdown. That nightmare scenario has been avoided thanks to Johnson's election. He earned the job partially thanks to his conservative beliefs, which garnered wide support in the Republican Party. He was a key figure in seeking to overturn the 2020 election, helping explain why he did not receive any Democratic support. That philosophy, along with some of his other conservative beliefs, could lead to more gridlock, even with the House back open for business. I think there's going to be, if anything, more gridlock, given that he is uh, more like right than um, some other candidates like McCarthy and um, Emmer. Um, like, one of the reasons Emmer didn't get, like, push through into um, the floor vote is because like he supported gay marriage and a lot of Trump allies were criticizing him for that saying like they were going to hold out on him um, because of his track record um, so I think if anything there's going to be more gridlock that gridlock is less than ideal especially with all the issues Johnson will have to face almost immediately a lot of like congressional activities have been put on pause, put on hold, um, especially with everything going on with Israel and Hamas, um, especially since the U.S. has announced its support for Israel. Um, he'll probably have to take that on, um, pass legislation um, to get the ball rolling on funding for the war in Ukraine. Um, and there's also, you know, the stuff going on on the border and immigration. So he has a lot on his plate. We'll have to see if he'll be ready for it. For WNUR News, I'm Brendan Preisman. Thank you so much, Brendan. And with Halloween just around the corner, you might be thinking about how to stay warm while still making the most out of your costume. 
But do you really need to be wor- worried about chilly temps? Brandon Conderitz has the answer on this week's Fair Weather Friends. Brandon. Welcome back to Fairweather Friends. Each week, we give you a peek into the local and national weather. This is my first Fairweather Friends of the school year, and you're in luck. All summer, I've been gathering a list of quirky weather facts for you to enjoy. From Evanston, Illinois, this is Fairweather Friends. October is winding down, and I have one question. Where is true fall? Don't get me wrong, I've been able to bust out my great sweater collection every once in a while, and some of the trees are changing color. But temperatures this past week reached into the 60s and 70s, which is fairly uncommon for Chicagoland this time of year. I had to ditch my jean jacket for shorts and a t-shirt, which I'm totally not complaining about, but why is it so warm over a month after the official start of autumn? That question got me thinking, and I found some data from Climate Central that may surprise you. Since 1970, the U.S. has seen a seven-day increase in warmer fall days, with an average increase of 1.6 degrees Fahrenheit. While it might not seem like much, the trend speaks for itself. Temps will likely keep going up. While temperatures in Chicago aren't rising as quickly as they are in other parts of the country, the trend indicates that we could actually see a harsher winter. NOAA's Climate Program Office says that polar vortex events could increase as bone-chilling air from the North Pole creeps down into the northern part of the continent. Essentially, warming temperatures can distort the boundary that normally keeps that Canada goose-worthy weather up north, which can plunge Northwestern's campus into a snowy frenzy. The end of October means Halloween, of course, and Climate Central has some data on the spookiest day of the year's temperature trends, too. I remember trick-or-treating in the snow at points in my life, but signs show there's been an average increase of 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit in Halloween temperatures since 1970. The warmest Halloween on record was clocked at 80 88 degrees in 2016, and the chilliest was 1955 at 27 degrees. I cannot imagine wandering my neighborhood in search of a Snickers bar in those conditions. What does this mean for right now, though? Over the next few days, the warm air we've been enjoying will be pushed up north as a cold front sweeps across the Midwest and East Coast, bringing some precipitation into the mix, too. So you might want to consider thinking about how you can work some layers into your elaborate witch costume or that blow-up T-Rex suit that I know someone will be wearing this weekend. If you're headed out tonight, look for a low of 43 degrees Fahrenheit, a sharp contrast from the 60s and 70s high we saw today. Tomorrow, you can expect similar temps to stick around during the day, and conditions will be about the same through the evening. Sunday looks like a doozy, though, with lows dipping into the lower 30s and some showers are likely on the way. How about Halloween itself? Chilly temps will stick around, around the 30s and 40s, and you might even see a flurry or two in what could be the first snow shower of the season. How's that for Midwestern weather? Turns out the scariest thing on the streets this weekend might not be all those Freddy Kruegers and Pennywises, but that the true fall weather that some of us, aka me, have been waiting for is finally here. Temps have been a bit unpredictable lately, so as always, you might want to double check your favorite forecast app before heading out this weekend and into next week. But above all, make sure to stay warm, eat all the candy, and have fun if you celebrate. That's all for this week's edition of Fairweather Friends. Thanks for tuning in. Until next time, keep shopping for that new winter coat and all the matching accessories. You'll need them soon. In Evanston, Illinois, Brandon Condritz, WNUR News. That's all for WNUR News at 6 p.m. For more news and updates and reports, follow us on Twitter or X at WNUR News. 
You can listen to these and other WNUR news stories on our website, WNURnews.org. That's WNURnews.org. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Our producer today is Jessica Chen. Our reporters are Brandon Conderitz, Gabriella Gozzi, and Brendan Praisman. From all of us here at WNUR News, thanks for listening. I'm Ellie Skelly. Catch our next newscast on Monday, October 30th at 6 p.m. Now, back to scheduled programming.